Others have had a chance to say it, and I want my shot at it too. Merry Christmas. I'm deeply honored that you've chosen to be here in this special time, in this special space to celebrate the coming of the King. I just want you to know that we realize in a gathering like this that there are people that come from a large spectrum of where they're at on their journey toward Jesus. There's probably some of you that you just do this every year for as long as you can even remember. You just come to Christmas Eve services. But some of you, this might be the first time that you've ever come here. And you might even be wondering, why am I here? I want you to know that we've been praying for you. We've been praying for all of you. And here's how I've been praying. I've been praying that you would have an encounter with the living God. The real, tangible, living God that he would speak to you in a way that you can hear and understand. And wherever you're at on your journey toward him, that you would take the next step in seeking him. Because Christmas time, it's a season of seeking, isn't it? I mean, some of you, probably a lot of you, many of you, have been seeking that perfect Christmas gift. And if you haven't found it by now, you are going to be really, really late in getting that done. Some of you, if you're like me, you love seeking the perfect price on that gift. Kind of the joke with me a little bit is that the F word to me is full price. I don't like to pay full price for anything. You're seeking maybe that perfect tree. You've been seeking that perfect family picture where everybody's smiling like everybody's getting along this Christmas. Some of you have been seeking that perfect family memory. You just want there to be that time around the table that just seems like a Norman Rockwell painting, seeking that perfect family memory. Some of you, during this season, you've been seeking that perfect, ugly sweater to wear to that perfect party. A couple weeks ago, my son Josiah called me up and said, hey, Dad, a bunch of our friends were going to an ugly sweater contest, ugly sweater party. Can I borrow one of your sweaters? And I just said, yeah, yeah, you guys are way quicker than I was. I was like, yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. But there was a little bit of redemption in that story for me. He came and went through all of my sweaters and he said, Dad, you got nothing. All your sweaters are pretty cool. Yes, my teenagers think I'm cool. It's the best Christmas gift ever. This is a season of seeking, Christmas. That first Christmas was a season of seeking as well. You heard Bill's story, the gift. The wise men were seeking Jesus. Many of us here may be seeking Jesus. Their story is our story. They were travelers, they were sojourners, they were on a journey to find Jesus. But here's what they found out. If you want to find Jesus, you've got to get directions. And God gave them directions. If you don't leave with anything from this sermon tonight, I want you to hear this. God's deepest desire is to reveal himself to you. He wants you to know him. He doesn't want you to just know about you, about him. He wants you to know him. 
to experience him in a real, tangible, personal way. That's what Christmas is all about, the light coming into the darkness. And these wise men found that out, that there were three different ways that God was desperately trying to reveal himself to them and ultimately to the world. The first light that God was trying to shine into their life was the light of creation. You saw that in the video as well. These were men that understood the stars. They understood the creation. And what they began to see was God was revealing himself to them through his creation. When I was a kid growing up, I mean, I'll just be absolutely honest with you. I was not a kid that was seeking God in any way. I mean, I was just about the things that kids are about. I mean, it was, it was always about baseball and basketball, riding bikes with my friends, and BB guns. Loved BB guns. My parents armed me way too young in life. But it was, that's what my life was about. I wasn't seeking anything. So I would hang out with my friends. We would do those kinds of things all day long. But I have these distinct memories, especially with my neighbor, my closest friend, John. In the evenings, we would lay down on the grass and we would just look up at the stars, the bright stars in the sky. And these little snotty-nosed grade schoolers suddenly turned into philosophers and theologians. Not necessarily very good ones, but just looking up at the stars in creation caused us to start to ask some questions. And we would have conversations about that. Do you believe in God? I do. I think that there's something out there. What do you think he's like? I'm embarrassed by some of the things that we came up with in terms of what we thought God was like. But there was something about how the creation was stirring us, this belief that there's something bigger than us in this world. Some of you may have experienced that in your own life. And maybe you've even heard people say something like this. Usually this is something that people say to me when they're trying to explain to me why they don't need to come to church. They say, I don't need to come to church because I feel close to God when I'm in nature, creation. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've heard people say that. Friends, that's not an accident. God is up to something. Here's how the Apostle Paul explains God's heart in revealing himself through the creation. Romans 1.20. It says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have, listen to this, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. God uses his creation to draw us to him. And that's what the wise men experienced on that first Christmas. God was drawing them toward him. But the creation only got them to Jerusalem. Once they got to Jerusalem, God needed to shine another light for them. Not so they wouldn't, so they wouldn't just know God in a general sense, but know exactly what God wanted them to do. He gave them the second thing, which was the light of scripture. When they showed up there, they were exposed to an ancient prophecy from the book of Micah. And this ancient prophecy talked about this king that was coming one day. 
And even though they were not Jewish scholars, they were not Jewish people, they put their faith and their trust in what was revealed in the scriptures and they found their way to Bethlehem. See, if we just use the creation to try to get a general sense of God, what we will start to believe is that God is just this picture of our worldview. I think God is kind of like this. Maybe he is kind of a little bit like this. It's just a reflection of ourself. What God wants us to understand is that he desires to reveal himself in time and space through his scriptures. That we would understand who he is, what he's like, how it is that he wants to relate to his creation. What is it that he wants for us? What is it that he wants from us? You see, that's what the wise men were experiencing. God's creation and God's scripture working together to lead them to Jesus. And all of those things, the creation and the scripture point people to Jesus. But it was when they showed up in Bethlehem, when they showed up there, that's when they were exposed face to face to the ultimate picture of God's revelation of himself. This was the light coming in to the world. It was the light of the incarnation. And we use that word incarnation, it's just a fancy word to say God became flesh. That's what we sing about at Christmas, isn't it? The Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the different gospel writers that talk about Christmas do it in a little bit different way, each of them. Mark actually doesn't have anything to do with the biblical, the birth narrative of Jesus. He skips it completely. Matthew and Luke, they talk about the specific historical events around the birth of Jesus. But John, John does something very different. He doesn't talk about the events of Christmas. He talks about the theology of Christmas. On a grand scale, on a theological scale, what was happening in that barn in Bethlehem? Here's how John describes it. John chapter one, starting in verse one. He says this, in the beginning, the word. And when John uses that phrase, the word, he is specifically talking about Jesus. He's talking about the second person of the Trinity. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. John just makes it absolutely clear. This Jesus that we're talking about, he is deity, 100% divine. John goes on, he created everything through him. Wait, verse two, he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. This Jesus was the creator. He's the one who spoke and created everything that we see. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. And verse nine, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
John's trying to give us a theological picture of the creator, the one who made everything, the one who made you, made me. He was coming into the world to become part of the creation. This was light shining in the darkness in that Bethlehem manger. Can we just pause for a minute and just kind of let the reality of what I just said kind of wash over us just a little bit? Maybe even the audacity of what I just said that the creator of all things was coming to be a part of the creation. And if it is true that God's greatest desire is to reveal himself to all people, why would he do it in this way? This Bethlehem manger. It's so hushed. It's so humble. It's so hidden. I mean, is this how Hollywood would write this script? Is this how you would write the script? Wouldn't the king of kings want to make a grand entrance into the world? You didn't get to write the story. Hollywood didn't get to write the story. But God did write the story. And let's think about some pieces of this story. That the God of the universe became a baby in a manger. Think about that. The God of the universe had one of those newborn faces, those red, pruny, wrinkled faces. You know the one that moms post on Facebook and everyone says, beautiful baby, but it's a face only a mama can love. God became that. This baby cried. This baby cried out. I'm sure his cry was strong, powerful, but it was a cry, a cry that said, I'm making myself vulnerable. The only way that this God is even gonna live for another day is if this teenage girl that is sitting right here is willing to take care of him. Other than that, he's not even gonna make it. It's audacious. Majesty stepping down into the mundane of this world. And can I even be so crass as to say, not just the mundane of this world, but the actual manure of this world. He was born in a barn. It's hushed. It's humble. It's so hidden. And you start to think about this kind of entrance into the world. If you want to reveal yourself, is that a mistake? Should the story have been written in a better, different way? Was it a mistake? Or friends, is that the message? Is there something that God is trying to communicate to us because of how he came to this earth? Friends, this is the message. When God says to all of us that I am willing to be born in a barnyard, he is saying for all time, there is no place that I cannot work in the lives of people. There is no heart that is too hardened. There is no life that is too broken. There is no one whose life has 
fallen into the depths of darkness that God is not willing to go deeper still to shine the light into the darkness and pull them out. The message of the manger is that there is no limit to God's love. When Jesus was born in that manger, my hope was born. And so was yours. Our hope was born on that day. Friends, that's why, just hands down, I love Christmas. I love Christmas because it's this invitation for us to believe the wildest of promises, the most audacious of promises, a promise that just seems too good to be true, that God himself would become one of us so that we can become one with him. It's audacious. You know who believed it? The wise men. The wise men believed it. And when they came to that manger, they bowed before him. They kneeled before him. They exalted him for the king that he was. They laid their gifts at his feet. They laid their lives at their feet, at his feet. And that's how they came to know him. People don't miss King Jesus, most times because of lack of information. It's because of an unwillingness to bow our knee before him and to exalt him for who he is. But they did. They knew who he was and they exalted him. And they brought gifts, representative, prophetic really, of who he was gonna be, gold. Gold that reminds us that he is a king. Royalty, king of kings, lord of lords. Incense, to remind us that he was gonna function as a priest. Priest meaning a mediator between God and man. He was gonna be the one that was gonna stretch out his arms and die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could have a relationship with our creator that will last forever. They brought myrrh, a death burial oil to remind us of how it was that Jesus was gonna accomplish this. His death on our behalf, his burial, but his resurrection on the third day. They saw him for who he was and they worshiped him. Absolutely worshiped him. But I love how Matthew tells this story because in Matthew's telling of this birth narrative of Jesus, There's another prominent character in this story, a villain, really, but another king. His name was King Herod. And when the wise men came to Jerusalem and they got connected to Herod, they asked him what they probably thought was a very simple question. They just said, where is this newborn king of the Jews? That question, it ate Herod's lunch. Because you know what was going on in Herod's head? You know what was happening in his heart? He was saying, I'm the king of the Jews. There's not room on this throne for another newborn king of the Jews. And so Herod tried to take it upon himself to snuff out the light that was coming into the world. Isn't that an amazing contrast that Matthew shows us? There's this kings 
these wise men that were willing to put Jesus on the throne of their life where he rightly belonged. And there's this other king that was willing to say, I deserve to be king. Nobody but me. You know what I think? When I think really honestly about my own life, I kind of identify with Herod sometimes. I want to be king. I don't want anyone else to call the shots in my life. Sometimes not even God. It's like, God, you do you. I'll take care of me. But it keeps us from knowing the real king. We can know about him, but it's not until we put him on the throne of our life like the wise men did that we actually come to know him in a real, personal, experiential way. What are we gonna do with this baby in a manger? Christmas, for every one of us, it's a crossroads. There's two ways that we can go. Make him the king, make ourselves the king. What are we gonna do at Christmas? Can we trust him with our life? Are we willing to surrender our life to him? Does he have our best interest at heart? If we don't know the answer to those questions, we will never bow our knee to him. One of the great privileges I've had as being a pastor is I've had the opportunity to do lots and lots of weddings. It's an honor, an incredible honor to get to be a part of a wedding. And as the officiant of a wedding, you get a pretty unique vantage point of a wedding. Like I'm up front and right to my side here is a groom. And I love getting a chance to talk to the groom. I put my arm around him, try to encourage him, let him know that she's gonna be the most beautiful that you've ever seen her when she walks down that aisle. And when she comes, if you get weak in the knees, just lean in, buddy. Just lean in, I got you. And I've seen lots of different responses from grooms. Tears, getting weak kneed, just gasps sometimes. But you know what? Nobody gets to see that but me. You know why? Because as soon as that bride starts to make her way in, everybody stands up, and where do they look? Boom, at the bride, as they should. Everyone should be looking at the bride. But I love to look at the groom. I wanna know what's happening in his heart. I want to see his response. This spring, I had the opportunity to do a wedding for some dear friends of mine, Zach and Mackenzie, and a photographer, their photographer, caught this picture that captures exactly what I'm talking about. This picture of joy and excitement in the heart of a groom. Look at this picture with me. How awesome is that, really? I do know what happened right there is that that really put some pressure on some of you guys because you're gonna be driving home and your wife is gonna say, you did not look like that to me when I was walking down the aisle. I'm sorry about that. Come back to the relationship series that we're gonna be starting in January. We'll talk about it then. What's the point? Why do I even share that? There's a metaphor that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between Jesus and all of those who are gonna bow their knee to him. He calls it his church, but there's the metaphor of a groom and a bride. And when Jesus looks, 
When Jesus looks at his bride, all those who are gonna make him king with their life, he says there's great joy in his heart. There's a scripture from Hebrews chapter 12 that is actually just one of my favorites because it describes the heart of Jesus for us. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, what? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you listen to that, there's kind of a disconnect there, isn't it? It's talking about Jesus had this great joy as he faced the cross. What's going on there? Why would there be joy in his heart? He's about ready to face the most physically punishing way that you can die, a Roman crucifixion. But that's not even the half of it. The infinite thing that he was about ready to experience was in himself, in his body, in his person, taking upon himself the wrath of God for the sin of the world, taking my sin, my guilt, my shame. But here's what this author is helping us understand. When Jesus looked at that, there was still joy in his heart. Why? What did he see? He saw me. He saw you. He saw everyone that was going to make him king in their life. He saw his bride and it gave him joy. I don't know about you, but I can trust a God like that. That is a God that is worthy of me to bow my knee to him, to give my life to him, to give my all to him. He's worthy. He is worthy of everything. If this is true, if this really happened, if God came near, nothing else in this world matters more than making him king of our life. As we wrap up the sermon part of this, can I just ask you to do something? I just want to ask you to close your eyes, bow your head, and would you just reflect for a moment? Would you just reflect on the things that I've been sharing about this creator that became part of the creation? And would you just ask yourself today, where am I at with making him king of my life? can imagine in a group like this if you could just keep your heads continue to be bowed and your eyes closed just want to talk to you for a moment imagine in a group like this that there are some that are just sensing that nudge in their heart that they know they've been on the throne of their own life Jesus needs to be king in their life in your life it's time to come home It's time to respond to the greatest invitation to make Jesus your king. And if you sense that that's something that you want to do today, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer, and there's nothing magic about these words in any way. But this is just a way for you to express in your heart your desire to make Jesus your king. You can just pray this along in the quietness of your own heart as I pray. Jesus, thank you for loving me personally. And thank you for becoming a person so that I could know you 
and have a real relationship with you. Thank you for breaking down all the barriers that keep me from knowing and experiencing you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross in my place to pay the penalty for my sin, my guilt, and my shame. Jesus, thank you that you took what I deserved. You didn't wait for me to get it all together, but you moved toward me. And I just want to humbly today respond to you by moving toward you. Jesus, I acknowledge that I need you. I open my life up to you and I receive you today as my true king and my true savior. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin and giving me eternal life. I want to turn from my sin today and I want to turn to you. Take control of my life, Jesus, and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Amen. When Jesus was here on this earth, when he was teaching to those that were his closest followers, those that had bowed their knee to to him, he, as the light of the world, gave them an identity. He said to them, you are the light of the world. He said, if you've bowed to me, my light is in you, and you have become the light of the world. And he said, it's like a, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And he said, you would never want to hide it. In fact, you would want to hold it up high on a stand so that it would give light to everybody, everyone in the room. Then he said, in the same way, let your good deeds shine before men so that they can see your heavenly father and see what he is doing and glorify him as God. Friends, in just a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to sing Silent Night together. But it is in a tangible way, we're going to talk about us being the light of the world. As the light of the world comes into us, we get the opportunity to light the world for him. I'm going to have my beautiful assistant, Brian, come up here. We've got kind of a a thing around here that we want as little wax on the chairs as possible. So here's how we're going to light the candles and share them with each other. Under your chair, you have a candle. You can grab that right now. And this is what needs to happen. The lit candle needs to stay vertical. The unlit candle comes in horizontal to that candle, lights it, and then moves to the next candle. You kind of see the system that we're going to have going here? Brian and I are going to walk down these aisles lighting your candle, and the ushers are going to come from the back and light your candles as well. But Journey, we want to be a place that brings the light of Jesus into the darkest places in the Gallatin Valley and around the world. Let's be the light of the world. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.